today's passage is still set on the day of Pentecost. And it appears that the events of the upper room have spilled out onto the street. And Peter now has this amazing opportunity. The crowd is asking, some are making fun of it, as you'd imagine. Others are going, what is, what is going on here? How can this be? What is taking place right now? And Peter now has a really unique opportunity presented to him here. He's bringing the locals up to speed with what is occurring. And that's what we're going to start reading from today. So verse 14 of chapter 2, let's get into it. All right, verse 14. Then Peter stood with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Before we move on in this, we need to understand something. Luke is not present watching this sermon as he, he's written it down, but he has come back to Jerusalem with Paul later in the accounts. And so he's hearing how this went down. It says at the end of this chapter that Peter used many more words to try to persuade the Jews and to plead with him to come back to where God wanted them to be. So what we have here is basically the study notes version of Peter's sermon. And uh, so as, although it's pretty long on this for us to read through, it's basically a, a summary of what Peter said. And uh, today, I'm actually going to give you the study notes of the study notes of the sermon that Peter did. All right, does that make sense? Today, I'm going to find a few themes and help us keep track that way and just make it simple for us that way. Hopefully, it's going to be simple. <laughs> it's study notes of a study notes of a sermon. Here we go. Peter's first thought is this. This is a time like no other. This is a time like no other. We've already learned that Pentecost was a time of celebration because it anticipated new harvest. They held this feast because they were instructed to do so in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It grew into a solemn thing because they linked it with the giving of that Torah law in, uh, at Mount Sinai. They made it the anniversary of that as well. So on the day they celebrated and reflected on the scriptures, Peter is shedding new light on them by showing how they pertain to what is going on at that time. His first way of doing that is by quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. You can read that in your own time. Joel's prophecies feature inspired calls for his immediate generation to repent, but also for his nation to look to its ultimate salvation. In the verse before this, verse 27, it points to God who will be among his people. And this is a pointer to the work of Christ. We're told there will be a time for judgment, but not before the Spirit of the Lord would be poured on the earth and people would do great things in his name. 
by using this verse, Peter is communicating a couple of things. First, that the Spirit of the Lord that the prophet Joel spoke of was the same Spirit of the Lord that was at work before their eyes. In other words, he's telling the people, this isn't a drunken thing. This is our God as we know him getting deeply involved in our life right now. He is here. He's assuring the Jewish audience that this is a move of God taking place. Second, that this was the ushering in of the last days. The last outpouring of the Spirit on the world that Joel spoke of. An age between God dwelling among their people and God wielding final judgment on the earth. That is the period of time that you and I occupy. The church age. As I said two weeks ago, the period of time in God's timetable that the apostles occupied is the period of time that you and I occupy. The church age. We are in it. Which makes it a whole lot more urgent right now, doesn't it? Peter is telling the Jews in front of him that this truly was an unprecedented time. To ignore it would be perilous. Because the day that of Pentecost that Peter is preaching in launches the last age of the world as we know it. The Spirit of God is making his final advance to draw people to himself. When it says last days, last means last. This is a time like no other. He then shifts gears a bit. Let's, gonna, let's keep reading from verse 22. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, who was received from the Father, the promised, he has received from the Father the, Holy, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For, God did not ascend to, for David did not ascend to heaven, Yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I see Peter's next thought as this. To the Jewish audience that he's speaking to, this is a person like no other. 
We need to understand the time. And we need to bring the world around us to the awareness that this is a person that everyone must stop and consider. The person of Jesus Christ. When Peter is done linking the Spirit of God in the Old Testament to their immediate experience, the Spirit descending, he then goes on to link the Old Testament and the Spirit of God to Jesus. And he does this rather cleverly by making clear two passages from the Psalms, which for for Jewish leaders for centuries had held this to be quite enigmatic. They didn't quite understand how to, to work these passages through sometimes. The first one is Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 16, verse 9 to 10. It was hard to work with because they couldn't figure out who this holy one would be who would not see decay. There was all sorts of debate about what that holy one was. Some suggested it was the Torah, the Old Testament itself. It won't see decay. Others were trying to work out who and the, you know, how this would work out. Peter has made this a messianic verse here. He links it with Jesus, with the Messiah. Before this, this was not the case. The other verse he quotes is from Psalm 110 verse 1. This was considered a messianic verse, something that anticipated the coming Messiah. Jesus in Mark 12 quotes and claims this verse, knowing it had confounding the wisest minds, yet was abundantly clear to him. Up to this point, the Jews knew about this verse saying it was about a Messiah, but they were refusing to make that Messiah link with Jesus yet. They were not coming to that point. Peter clearly spills out who this Jesus was, and he's calling these Jews who rejected Jesus to account. This is what he says. He was the one the Jews were looking for through the law and the prophets, through the Old Testament. He was the one that God had sent. And the things that happened to him in his death and resurrection occurred because God ordained it to be so. He was the one that would not see decay because death could not hold him in the ground. And he was the one that even now was at the right hand of the Father, equal with God to be regarded as Lord of their lives. He was, in fact, the true Messiah that these people had been living in hope and anticipating all along. Jesus was everything he said he was. He was everything the Scriptures pointed to. He was everything they had been hoping for. And he was to be worshipped as the divine, true Messiah. This truly was a man like no other. That's our message too. We have a man like no other for the world to behold. Jesus. All these others are out there. There's a lot of other religious thought out there. But eventually we must stop and ponder the claims of Jesus and think about him alone. We're going to verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warns them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. My third and final thought of the study notes of the study notes. <laughs> this unprecedented time and this unprecedented person calls for unprecedented response. Those present and listening have suddenly become aware that they're in a bad spot, Wayne, all of a sudden. They've rejected Jesus out of hand because he didn't fit the mold of what they anticipated from a Messiah. Instead, they crucified him. He was a Galilean. He was a rabbi who took on the, the tough ones. He was a liberator of, of oppressed people. He was a person who spoke against the religious system and, the, and wouldn't get politically involved. He was all these different things that, the Messiah, that they thought the Messiah would be the opposite of. But now... There was innocent blood on their hands. They're becoming very much aware of that fact right now. But now Peter's audience is being given the opportunity to put things right. The Holy Spirit is clearly at work here. It says he, it's, they were cut to the heart here. This is, a, this is a picture of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not sending them packing. There is no rejection out of hand. There is no condemnation immediately. That's it. You've done your dash. You are finished. Instead, these people are being drawn and compelled to finally ask the right questions. Brothers, what must we do? You know what? We need to be clinging to the Holy Spirit for that very thing. We can present an unprecedented person named Jesus to the world around us. And we need to do so with a sense of urgency because we live in an unprecedented time. But we need to cling to the Spirit in this because He does a drawing. Isn't that what we want to hear? Brothers, what must we do? Be praying for our friends. Be faithful with what we know. Be faithful in presenting Jesus. And let's pray for the day where people say, what should we do? What do I do now with this? And if you're praying for that to take place, the next bit tells us we better have an answer. <laughs> what do we do? I had a friend ask me, can you write in this like a prayer for me so I can teach my friend how to pray? I'm like, don't you know this? We need to know what we know at this point. Brothers, what must we do? And this is the chance for Peter. After this, is, after this point, Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel. Now Peter has a chance to proclaim it. This is human voices being used to proclaim the gospel for the first documented time. Brothers, what must we do? Peter calls them to three things. The first century church got started when 3,000 people obeyed. Get ready for the follow-up, if you know what you've got to say. <laughs> repent. First and foremost, repent. Repentance in a Greek level simply means to change one's mind. 
However, when we take the Hebrew and more Jewish understanding of the word, which the, the New Testament uh, seems to imply and, and, and embrace as well, we see it also refers to being sorrowful for past action and thinking and turning one's attention to new things. Repentance is about changing your mind, but also changing your purpose and the whole direction of your life. That's why we often talk about repentance being a 180-degree spin. Who, who's heard repentance discussed like that? You know, I was going this way, but now I'm going this way because it's an idea of turning our attention deliberately to new things. This is a word and concept which was used a lot when it came to God calling people back to himself. Joel 2 is an example of this, and we've actually seen some of this phrasing I'm about to read to you in a sec in the worship time as well. Joel 2, verse 12 to 13. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So there's that sorrowful idea coming out. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The Lord picks his words carefully here. Rend your heart, not your garments. They would tear their clothes as, a sign of, as an outward sign of repentance. And, Jesus, and the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. Let your hearts be torn and open to me. Do something in your heart of hearts. Change what is going on in the inside, not just make a public display of things anymore. It's an actively, deliberately make a change of heart in your stance and intent towards God. This is a challenge that has been presented to the Jewish audience here. Their heart was full of hatred and anger towards Jesus. But Peter is calling for these people to change their position on Jesus Christ. This is people who knew an idea of God. These are people who worshipped God. Now he's saying, you know what? If you need to actually get, you need to get things right. For you to get back on right standing with God again, you need to shift your position on who Jesus is. No one, get, no one gets to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Now they're saying, now he's calling them to take action. They were required to sorrowfully and purposely shift their stance from hostility and rejection to a place of belief and full embrace of who Jesus was. Get baptized. This was a controversial step for a Jew. They were aware of baptism as a rite of passage. But it was primarily reserved for people who were not Jews, Gentiles, who converted to Judaism. They would take this action as a symbol that their Gentile ways and their Gentile gods and their Gentile morals and Gentile lifestyle was dead in the water. And they would rise again a child of God and member of God's family. This act was so powerful and convincing that Jewish men would treat these men like brothers and even permit them to marry their daughters and their sisters. But to a person born a Jew who actually did a lot of ceremonial washing as part of their worship, baptism as an entry to faith was a bit bloated. To ask a Jew to get baptised was to ask them to acknowledge that they were outside of God's ways and outside of God's people. 
And because of their rejection of Christ, this was actually now their position. Right here we see an extreme case where religious heritage means nothing. And personal faith, personal repentance, personal identification with Jesus is everything. Now, is baptism the point of salvation? No. Ooh, we're a Baptist church. Repentance is where we get saved. When Peter preaches again in chapter 3, he again emphasizes faith and repentance to receive God's salvation. Later in Acts, a guy named Cornelius comes to a place of repentance and even receives the Holy Spirit before they get baptized. So God's kind of going, you know what? (laughs) He's given us the order there. If you've placed genuine repentant faith in Jesus Christ, then you can call yourself saved whether you get baptized or not. Consistently in Scripture, a person is declared saved or in a righteous state by faith in Christ. As Paul writes, not of works. The act of baptism, as far as I can tell, is a work. However, while baptism is a work, there is no doubt that Jesus endorsed and promoted this in the Great Commission. And we see throughout Acts that the natural step immediately after repentance is baptism. No one joined the church without getting baptized in the first century. The move of God was so compelling that these new believers had no problem making their faith public and, I, and coming to the realization that they were outside of God's family and going, you know what, we're going to do what it takes to make things right. And in through the borders of baptism they went. Some of these were proselytes. They were already baptized. And yet they went through it again. Interesting food for thought. Today we're in the Western church. We're quite private about our faith, I've noticed. Aren't we? We've got a very private faith, don't we? We don't talk about it much. We keep it deep-seated. We don't... If you visit any developing country you'll often find their response to Christ quite similar to the first century believers. I know in our congregation, baptism's been a bit of an issue for us. I think every church goes through it. You're not alone. You know, how much water's involved, when, what age, all that sort of stuff. It's got to be a point where we make a personal... We see in Scripture that baptism is linked with a person's choice to follow Jesus. That once they were out, they make a public declaration that once they were outside God's family, now they, through their faith, through their choice to acknowledge Christ, have become, have have found their faith, their peace with God, and then identify with God's family again. So it's that's how it's done in the scriptures. Perhaps some of us can examine the symbolism afresh, take a leaf out of the Jews' book, considering the depth of meaning and inconvenience it had for them. And failing all all that, if it was good enough for Jesus promoted by Jesus in his parting comments before ascension, the bottom line, there's something in it. (laughs) Finally, he tells his audience that they will receive the Holy Spirit. I can only tell you of a few times in my whole life where someone has tried to convert me, where someone has tried to explain the claims of Jesus to me. Just about every time it's been a revivalist. Someone who believes that you're not saved unless you're speaking in tongues. I even had one the day before my induction. I was down to the sinkhole. 
And I had a flyer stuck under my nose real fast. Do you know Jesus? Are you speaking in tongues? I'm like, quite interesting. I won't go into the depth of the conversation. It was quite funny. Why is it that the peripheral members of the church community are the most fervent with sharing their faith? You've got the Mormons on one end, the revivalists. I think they're doing their best to interpret their possess- their pas- this passage and to make their calling and election sure. I think this is one of their motivating things. However, I see this a little bit differently, and I think I'm not alone here today. In John 14, Jesus spoke about the advocate, the paraclete, the comforter, who would descend and would dwell within them once he he had made his physical ascension. Jesus taught that this advocate would have the same divine nature as himself. He would teach the same things that he himself taught. If you look at John 20, verse 19 to 23. I'll push the right button. We see that Jesus breathes on the disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit then, once they've beheld Jesus in his resurrected form. It's at this place that scholars suggest the disciples enter the position of salvation that you and I understand it to be. If you're not sure, think about this for a second. The 12 disciples were still under the law of Moses until Jesus died and rose again. Once they, Jesus had risen and they could behold him in his risen state, could they actually only then understand him as the full atonement of their sin? Peter then tells the crowd that this Holy Spirit is now freely available for anyone who would come to a place of repentance before God. Up to this point, these Jews are also under the law. And this is an invitation into the era of grace. This is not a spiritual gift session being referred to. This is a spirit of the risen Christ that John 14 speaks of. Taking up resonance and continually reminding us of the way to live. When we get saved, we get the Holy Spirit. And that's what his purpose is. Just think what this once hostile group of Jews were being offered here. The one day rejected and crucified was now seeking to dwell in their deepest being. That's amazing, isn't it? This was an invitation to grace. And I know this is cliche, but it truly was amazing. I'm going to stop there. I need to. We live in an urgent time and it's getting urgenter and urgenter all the time if that's such a word if 2,000 years on we understand the, the last days were initiated 2,000 years ago it's getting urgent people we also serve a truly amazing saviour and we are acquainted with the way to God through faith in Jesus It's now time to begin to get this urgent message out there. If you're trying to articulate this, trying to work out how to articulate what you believe to people around us, 
Peter gives us some really good bullet points and I'm going to really quickly share these. If you're trying to work out how to articulate the gospel, if you're going, if there's people around you going, what do these things mean and what must we do? Here's some things you can say. One, we crucified Jesus. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We crucified Christ. Like the Jews, we have rejected Jesus and we're living in active rebellion against him. Okay, sin places us in hostility to God. We're in a place of rebellion against God right now. In our sinful state, we are outside God's plan and outside God's family. The Jews had heritage and even works, but they had no relationship and no intimate knowledge of God. Suddenly, the gospel message was putting them on the outside looking in. I've often heard the gospel story when you're preaching, put people outside of a box or put them inside a box and tell them how to get out, you know, using words. This could be a way to do it. Next point, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the divine anointed one who God sent to pay sin's penalty. Next point, when we repent, in other words, when we change our mind and stance about Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we become sons and daughters of God. It's not our heritage that saves us. It's our faith that does. And finally, when we change our outlook from hostility to faith, the Spirit of Jesus comes and dwells within us. We receive the Holy Spirit. He gives us power and courage to live a life of effective faith, and He teaches us continually about the things of God. You don't walk alone when you make Christ Lord. I'm going to stop there. Maybe you can think those thoughts through. Maybe in your, in your house churches or around the family lunch table today, you can start to work out, how do I articulate those things? How do I get those things across to the world around me? How do I embrace the urgent time that I'm in? And how do I make Jesus, this unprecedented person, abundantly clear to the world around me so that they too would say, brothers, what must we do?